so then it became very clear to us that like if there weren't any jobs to go around we're, we were going to need to create some and on that very first trip going back to the first trip all those pictures i took when you go back to those pictures the two things you see the most of are a lot of poor people and a shit ton of trash and i wrote in my journal on my very first trip if haiti can turn trash into money equals good Hey, what is up? Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. And this is a very special episode for me. A few of you have been listening all the way from the jump, or maybe you just went back and listened to some of the early episodes in our very large library. Uh, But in episode 16, I interviewed Zach Malone, who's a part of Draper Triangle Ventures, one of the larger VC firms in Western PA with a network all over the country and beyond. And after having that conversation, I had the referral language tight. I said, who else in Pittsburgh, who else period, should I meet an interview and do a podcast with? And Ian Rosenberger was the first name that he gave me. Now, it has been more than two and a half years of following up, of trying to make this a reality. So I was particularly excited to be able to finally sit down with Ian and record a conversation about his company, Thread International. Not only do they have an amazing social mission in supporting the survivors of the Haitian earthquake, but they're also recycling plastic bottles into thread and fabric used by massive companies like Reebok, Marmot, and Timberland. Now they are in the process of launching their own line of products going direct to consumer right now with a backpack and in early 2019, a whole line of products as well. We get into the origins of the company, his thoughts and plans for the future, and some of the doubt that he faces down every day as an entrepreneur. I found this fantastic. I think that you will enjoy it as well. So please enjoy this conversation with Ian Rosenberger. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Right on. It's really good to be here. So the place for us to start before we establish what Thread is and all the amazing things that you're doing is on the topic of professional persistence. Mm -hmm. So before we started recording, I mentioned uh, Zach Malone being on the podcast. Yeah. He was the 16th episode. So that was way, way, way early in the day. Uh He's with Draper Triangle Ventures. They're an investor in Thread International. And after talking with Zach, I've got the good referral language going. Who else should I be talking to? Your name came up. So that was more than two and a half years ago. And I have been professionally persistent to the point where we're finally sitting down now for the 336 episodes. So I'm very excited. Right on. But my question to you is, tell me a time that you had to be professionally persistent and it paid off. Oh, that's a great starting question. My goodness. Uh, I mean... Look, we're sitting today in our facility in, in Homewood. Can I talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. So, uh, yeah, we're in Homewood right now. And, and we're in an old Westinghouse factory. It's, uh, we moved in in April. And, I mean, I'm, I'm the CEO of a startup. And, and being the CEO of a startup is uh, nothing but scrap. It's just grit and scrap. And the trick is not to uh, right away have the best product. The trick is not right away to have the best story. The trick is not right away to do any of those things. The trick is to stay alive long enough to be able to figure it out, right? Like that's the game, that's startup. And sometimes you figure it out really fast and sometimes you figure it out really slowly. Um, But my job as a founder, as a CEO, is to make sure that I keep the doors open and the lights on long enough for the smart people inside 
to figure out whatever problem we ask them. And, and when we think about startups that way, it, it, it puts everybody on the same playing ground. Whether you're Mark Zuckerberg in a dorm room in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or you know, you're Ian Rosenberg or blah, 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 like you know, this six foot seven gangly guy in, in, in Homewood. So yeah, that, I, think, I think when it comes to being professionally persistent, that's what I do for it. Like, that's my job. If I'm a good CEO, it's, it's to do exactly that. And I feel like, you know, we've been alive for five, six years now. So I like to think we're, we're doing it. We're not going away. And it's the reason I look so damn tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you actually look pretty good, all things considered. You're in the middle of a really big Kickstarter campaign, which is an a important next step for the company. But the first step uh, goes back to 2010, 7.0 magnitude earthquake in Haiti, more than 100,000 people killed. 200,000, yeah. 200,000. I was conflicting numbers out there yeah, on, yeah. The, on the internets. Um, this, this is a part of the genesis story of Thread. So take us back to that point in time and how that led to what you're doing here now in Homewood and elsewhere. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, when we talk about uh, professional persistence, we don't have to look any further than the entire nation of Haiti um, because they've been having to do it for generations. I mean, it's so easy when you get on this road and ask a question like this to go and start way, way back because Haiti has such a fascinating story. It's, it's the story of a slave country that revolted successfully. There's only, it's only happened twice in the history of mankind and, and became its own nation at a time when the entire world, or at least the entire Western Hemisphere, was still very slave, was not slave-free. So, so it was still very pro-slavery. So... You know, this country, this plucky, amazing group of people decided, like, you know, it was the ultimate startup. You know, we're going to break the chains of bondage and become our own nation. And and they, you know, immediately were met with a bunch of, of essentially old white dudes who were like, you can't be a nation. We're not going to trade with you. And we're not going to, because we don't believe that you should, you know, be your own own country. So that that, that Genesis story, the reason I even mentioned it is because it's, it's such a fascinating way for a country to begin. It, it, it highlights so much about the, like the burden that uh, countries like the United States still carry and the stain that we still carry of things like slavery. And it, it's contributed to Haiti staying poor for the last 200 years. I didn't know any of that when I started going there. Um, all I knew was that I was in a bar after a dodgeball match in Pittsburgh in 2010 and we had won our only match and we were sitting around drinking beers and Anderson Cooper comes on the TV and I see across the headline, you know, massive earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti and, and, you know, thousands dead. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, oh, that's such a shame. Like everybody, you know, something comes on CNN. Oh, what a shame. I think about it often these days when I watch CNN. Oh, <laughs> what a shame. The world seems to be falling apart. And I went home that night and I couldn't sleep. And it was one of those things where it was just like, like, that's the best you can do is what a shame. You know, I felt like this, I don't know what it was, but something that was like, you got, you have to have more in the tank than that. And, but I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to express that feeling in, in action, right? It was really hard to figure out what to do because, you know, I would heard, uh, don't go when those things happen, you know, don't be quote unquote a disaster tourist, et cetera. And, and so uh, you know, I, I weighed carefully whether or not I should actually go, but I felt this really, like this pool to just go. And it was like, listen, I'm, I'm, if I go, I can figure it out. And I know enough and how to handle myself in those types of places where, you know, I, I could figure out a way to be useful. 
uh, I can swing a hammer. I, you know, I know how to operate heavy machinery, you know, those types of things. I grew up on a farm. So like, you know, in the, I could at least put a week's worth of work in and like figure things out. So I did, I went and, and the Port-au-Prince airport was closed. So I flew into Santa Domingo. I took a bus to Port-au-Prince and it was a war zone. You know, just exactly what you'd expect. I mean, some people say 300,000 people dead and a million and a half people homeless. So, so if that's the city of Pittsburgh, right? Like metro area of, of Pittsburgh, dead or homeless over the course of a week, right? Really over the course of three minutes, but you know, in the weeks and months that followed. And, it, you know, it left this enormous imprint on me uh, that I didn't know how to handle, right? I was... Uh, I guess 27, 28, and um, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and had spent time uh, with uh, friends in, in who run really amazing NGOs in Africa and had spent some time with the poor, um, but really had not experienced this type of, of disaster and, and trauma. So, so uh, I met some people. I, I got hooked up with a person to stay with, and I... I spent a week there taking pictures and, and, and helping, you know, where I could. And, and the idea was, okay, I'm going to take a bunch of pictures. I'm going to come home and I'm going to sell them. I'm going to give that money to some nonprofit. And, and it was just like, it felt, it felt fine. Like it didn't feel like I was really actually doing anything. And it felt a little cheesy, to be honest. You know, it was just like essentially what I tell everybody not to do today. But I came home, I started thinking about how I was going to, you know, what I was going to do with the pictures. And I decided to go back with a friend who was a better photographer than me. And so the two of us went, his name's Jesse, the two of us went and we spent another week there. And, um, and it was on that trip, trip that I met this kid named Tassi, who was, uh, had this tumor on his face that he was dying of. And, and that really is what, what set the ball rolling down the path that we're on now. So what's really interesting, there's two things I want to hold on to. And the first is, you're acknowledging it was different. There's plenty of people who they see it on CNN. They go, what a shame. Yeah. They share some link that they think will help on social media and they give 50 bucks to the Red Cross right. or something like that, yeah. which isn't nothing. We sh- you can't disparage that. Sure. But to go beyond that speaks to some either switch being flipped or what I usually think of it as is there was already some sort of fertile ground for mm. that action to be taking. Mm-hmm. The, the preceding events had informed the choice to actually go down there. Yeah. So what I'm really curious was, did you feel like you had a choice in terms of going down there or did you feel utterly compelled? No, yeah, it felt like there was no choice. It, it was like, there was, it wasn't like I consciously was like, oh, this would be cool. It wasn't like that. It was like, it was as close to a lightning strike as you could get, you know, as close to somebody like smacking you in the head and saying, you're going. Yeah. And, and I still don't know where that was coming from, except that I wasn't in love with my job. You know, I felt like I had more to offer uh, to the world. I, I didn't feel like I had purpose in the work that I was doing. And I love the people I work with and they're wonderful people, but, um, I just didn't feel like I, I was fulfilling whatever thing I was supposed to fulfill with my life. And, and you know what's funny is I remember 9-11 happening. I, was, I think I was 19 or 20 years old. And, and uh, I felt the same thing then and didn't go. And, it, and I just remember, I, just, I guess I was too young. I just, I didn't go. And for whatever reason, like I was like, because I, I was an EMT, right? And, and, and I was like, oh, I, I could go and be useful. And I, and I didn't. And I always regretted it. And, and I think that contributed to it. And then, so when this happened, it was like, I'm going. Like it wasn't, it had no, there was nothing else more than that. I went home. I actually told my parents I had signed up with a nonprofit like Oxfam or something. And Make that them I, feel a little bit better about it. Right. Yeah. Right. So you meet Tassie. 
take us, you know, next step in terms of leading to, I think thread can be a thing. I think that there's an opportunity here to do more. Yeah. Gosh, that was, that's it. Like that's the whole, that's the meat of the matter. Um, Tass had, uh, had a tumor that was killing him. It was slowly growing into his skull and I met him on my second trip. Um, he asked me for help directly. So again, it wasn't, it wasn't a situation where it was like, oh, he might need help. I could help him. Um, you know, that same buddy who was with me taking pictures, he looks, he's, a, he's like a better looking George Costanza. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and he, while we were in Haiti, he, uh, he decided he needed a haircut. It was like 112 degrees. And, and, and so, uh, we, you know, all the Haitians that we were with were just like, that's going to be hilarious. We have to take this like short white guy into a barbershop and we're going to make fun of him for an hour. So we went up to a barbershop. We went, you know, Jesse uh, sits down in the chair. The, the, the barber says, you know, what do you want? And he, and he points to a chart of like 20 black men's haircuts. Yeah. And, and uh, Jesse looks at the chart, looks at him and is like, well, none of those. <laughs> And everybody, you know, the room laughs. And Jesse has that person, that like one of those infectious personalities where everybody wants to be around him all the time, and and he's easy to laugh around. And it, that Tassi took that opportunity of like that light moment, and he asked me to come out into the uh, into the street outside the barbershop, and he just asked me like, directly, very plainly, like, "Will you help me?" And it, I didn't have a choice. It was just like such a direct appeal like to look into somebody's eyes directly and he was close I, I i couldn't ever find my way back to that barbershop i wish i could but uh you know he uh he looked he was like he, he was kind of close talking to me and he was right in my face and he, and he asked me like very plainly so i said yes and and you know it wasn't altruistic like it's really important to note like i didn't it wasn't like i wasn't like i'm gonna i'm gonna be the savior of this guy you know like it didn't feel like that. It felt like a guy asked me and like now I was obligated to help him. So, you know, that, I think that's a really important distinction. Yeah. Um, because I, I, so I, I came home and, and it was one of those feelings that was like, I can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. If that makes sense. Like I've, I can't unsee this. I can't unask this. I, it's here now. It's in front of me. So like, there's only one way to go forward. I could either say no and, and you know, be a dick, <laughs> or, um, or or I could say yes. And it was one of those one of several crossroads moments throughout this whole process that like led to where we are. And so I did. A bunch of my friends got together. We 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 raised some money. Um, I, I didn't think that we were going to be able to get him into the country. We we talked about. I mean, literally, the plan was for a while to smuggle him into the country as a like Boy Scout and drop him off at an emergency room and run away. Like that was our plan for a while. Like, wow. uh, and, and actually that was my dad's idea. So you know <laughs> when your dad's at like bringing up that stuff, well, we're gonna smuggle him into the country and we'll just drop him off at the hospital. You're like, well, we're in deep shit. Like this is real, this got serious. Yeah. And so we were able to, to get him a, like essentially the equivalent of like refugee status. I got him to the States. You know, there was a really amazing doctor named Jeb Blaugren from AGH that, that has since become one of my dear friends and is on the board of our organization that did the surgery. Um, another really amazing plastic surgeon that took a, a, a piece of Tassie's leg bone and put it into his jaw and created a new jaw. And he lived with me and my roommate in Shadyside for 12 weeks and our dog. It was like the most, I, I would love to, it'd be a great like one act play 
of like Tassie living with me and my roommate and our basset hound. Yeah. Because it was hilarious. He was experiencing the world here for the first time. And and I don't know if there's a documentary you should see if you haven't. It's called God Grew Tired of Us. And and it's about the lost boys of the Sudan. And, and in fact, a big piece of the documentary takes place in Pittsburgh. And there's a really fascinating part of the doc. And some of these guys still live here and, and have families here now and have contributed to the Sudanese population in Pittsburgh. But And you should definitely talk to one of those guys. Like that is an amazing podcast. But the documentary traces these guys coming coming from the Sudan and into Pittsburgh. And there's a scene where they come into their apartment where they were placed and they're flipping the lights on and off and they're opening the cereal box for the first time and they're flushing a toilet. And it's like, you know, that, like that's what it was like with, with Tass. Like yeah. he looked down the garbage chute in my building and was like, where the hell does this stuff? Like the garbage <laughs> just disappears. Like I came home the first day that, uh, that he was staying with me and he was, he didn't speak any English. So, uh, he was trying to help. And he took all the dirty, or the, how did he do it? He took all of the, he was storing all the dishes, the clean dishes in the dishwasher. He thought that's where we kept the dishes. It was just like stuff like that. Yeah. It was just like these first time occurrences. And I have to tell you, like, it was exactly the way I was on his turf. Like, I had no idea how to get around in Haiti. I had no idea what to do, what the, how I was supposed to act. And I'm sure I looked exactly the way that he looked. So there was this bond that he and I got the chance to forge where we, like the more he was here and the more I was there, the more we both felt like we didn't belong in either place. And that has since contributed to him becoming other than my wife, like the closest person to me in the world. Like he, it, we just still are that way because we have this weird connection that is based on that idea. So after all that, uh, we took him back to Haiti after the whole thing was finished and we're like, okay, job well done. You know, like we got him sorted. We're going to get him home and we're going to move on. And, uh, it turns out that uh, that was a dumb idea and that we I realized immediately in getting back into the neighborhood that he's from, uh, he's from a neighborhood called Cité Soleil and that neighborhood, you know, you're born in that neighborhood, you hit, you, you know, if you're born in the States, you generally hit the lottery, right? If you're born in Cité Soleil, you just got the, the worst hand that you could have possibly been dealt by chance. And, and you know, a healthy Tassie at 17, 18 years old, um, was still destined for a short life and a violent death at best. So in bringing him home, it was immediately clear that like this, like this entire experiment that we'd done was enti- was very self-righteous. It felt all of a sudden like, oh my God, like this whole experience was just a bunch of like rich white kids in this, in, in Pittsburgh, like who feel like they can, like they're saving somebody. You know, the term that we throw around all the time is whites in shining armor. And it revealed a level of misunderstanding about poverty and the poor and the levels of, of how people become poor and um, the genetic lottery, all these things that I didn't know before. And, and that, that was a huge unlock, like understanding that if we didn't stick with Tasi until he didn't need us anymore, that we would, it, then the whole experiment would just be uh, this self-gratification. Right. I'm giving you a long answer. I, I love right. it. All I right. absolutely love it. All right, cool. Um, so, so we just decided that, and when I say we, just me and the, a couple of friends that had helped me do this, we just decided that, that that was what we were going to do. We were going to stick with Tasi until he didn't need us anymore. And that then immediately begged another really important question. What does it mean for the poor not to need the aid or the help anymore? And that we became a two-year endeavor that like really and truly became the most emotionally terrifying experience of my life to, to, you know, continuously 
go into communities that um, were were as, as like Tassies and to ask the poor what they needed. And it was amazing how novel it was that how many people had never been asked that question. And, and that led to a whole experience with NGOs and realizing that NGOs weren't actually solving a lot of the problems that we believe they should be. And, and as it turns out, in asking that question, we learned the same thing almost every time we asked. We got the same answer. And the answer was, I just want a decent job and my kids to have a better life than I had. And that, like, that, was the, that is now the basis of our philosophy around poverty, our philosophy around development, everything. Um, because it helped me understand that whether you live in Port-au-Prince or Pittsburgh or anywhere in between, that we all want the same shit. We all want a roof over our heads, food on the table, a decent job, and our kids to have a better life than we had. And a life with some dignity, with some purpose. And, and in understanding that, that unlock destroyed the line of us versus them when it comes to the poor. It just knocked all that down. Like the whole thing for me just all came together. And it was like, our futures are tied up in one another's. When somebody is doing poorly over here, it affects the rich over here. And we are in this same boat together. They're not different. They're not like we are all trying for the same things. And that most people on the planet never get the opportunity are just never like lucky enough to get the opportunity to pick themselves up by your bootstraps. It's hard to pick yourself up by the bootstraps when you're not given any boots. What we've explored in previous episodes and what I'm seeing as a through line here is the notion of things that are simple but hard. Yeah. The, the idea of a better life for my kids, a decent job, a lot of these things, it's a simple concept superficially to wrap your mind around. Yeah. But the difficulty in creating that for people and executing it and achieving it is really substantial. So where I think, I mean, I think we're already going here anyways, but the solution of creating this thread Mm -hmm. and how you discover that opportunity Mm -hmm. and what that looked like. Can you paint that picture for us? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, with that unlock in place, it became really clear that we were going to need to place people into jobs. Like that was the goal. Like it was just became, it was just like, oh, okay, well then everybody needs jobs. So then why aren't people creating things that are going to get people into jobs? Like there's plenty of organizations that are helping people, you know, get food. There's plenty of organizations that are helping people get healthy, but there's nobody working. And, and it was like, okay, well then, you know, we're going to need to figure out a way to do that. And, and the problem and the, what I realized is the reason NGOs and to their credit, they're trying to do the right thing, but there's just not a lot of jobs to go around and, and NGOs are inherently not based on job creation. They're, they're not economically motivated to do it. They're economically motivated to provide a service. So like they don't have this, like the skill set as organizationally to, to solve the problem. So they solve symptoms of the problem. It's not their fault. It's just the way this, like, that's just the structure of it. So as well meaning, meaning as people can be, unless there's like a, a, a wage at the end, none of it matters. All the things they do, by the way, are super important. Like if you think of poverty as a hole in the ground, right? And you think of a poor person at the bottom of the hole. When somebody's healthy, a little bit of dirt comes into the hole. When all the kids are in school, some more dirt comes into the hole. When you're under a roof, dirt, right? When you're under this, removed from the stress of like, of like US level debt, dirt. And then at that point, a person's prepared for a job and they can walk into it. But if you give somebody a job who hasn't had any of those things, then they're just going to stay poor. 
which is why you have the working poor. And and I think the United States is a really terrific example of like how we have so many working poor because we're not doing these other things very well. Things that, by the way, I think government is really has a big responsibility towards. So so then it became very clear to us that like if there weren't any jobs to go around, we're, we were going to need to create some. And on that very first trip, going back to the first trip, all those pictures I took, when you go back to those pictures, the two things you see the most of are a lot of poor people and a shit ton of trash. And I wrote in my journal on my very first trip, if Haiti can turn trash into money equals good. And the, I just went back to that. And I, I came home and I Googled, like, what could we turn trash into? And I learned that Patagonia was turning it into fabric. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, what if I could convince Patagonia to come and build a factory in Haiti? And, and so I tried to do that for a while and that didn't work. And, and then, I, you know, I'm coming back from Haiti one day and I was like, oh my gosh, we're just going to do this ourselves. Again, it wasn't like a choice. It's just like, oh yeah, that's, and it wasn't like Providence either. It just felt like this is the path, right? Like it's very clear there's, there's no static around this. Like we just have to do it ourselves. So then I came home and we figured out, uh, who was doing it. I remember Googling, uh, this place, EcoFi, I think was the name of the fabric that we Googled that people were making like fleeces out of plastic bottles. When we went and visited them, they were super nice. We spent a day learning about it. Uh, me and this guy, Frank, who was one of the, became one of the thread founders and, uh, Kelsey, who's also one of the thread founders. And we just figured out from there, piece by piece, how to make fabric from trash. Yeah. So we live in a media environment where the fundraise is the thing that's celebrated maybe even more so than the revenue. Oh, look at how much they raised. How exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, I don't actually think that we really need to, to, I mean, we've articulated the story very much of how you would sell this to an investor. And I think it's, conceivable for most people how that was possible. Moving forward to today, you're in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign. I've got the live results right here. You're super close to $200,000, $198,000, well past the goal of right. $45,000. Cool. And you're selling these backpacks, which is the first um, product that you're shipping mm-hmm. that is direct to consumer, mm-hmm. as opposed to all these past instances where you've worked with companies like uh, Timbaland, like Reebok, Reebok and, and others Marmot, to, yeah. to provide the fabric that they then put into their products. Yep. And an interesting thing that you said at the launch party for the campaign was that this was always part of the plan. It was always part of the plan to eventually be producing our own products mm-hmm. um, and not just being the supplier for someone else who delivers to the end consumer. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that vision and, and the vision of getting all the way to being the product supplier for the end consumer Mm -hmm. and where this is what's happening right now at the backpack. Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, we, we, as a business, a business brand, we made a lot of fabric for a lot of brands and it it was, it it was great. Uh, You know, helping brands get better was, was originally like we we called it powered by thread. And it was this idea that like we could help every brand make their stuff out of recycled materials. And I had this, you know, grand idea that like everybody would do this and it would just click into place and the whole industry would change. And, you know, we're, we're in an environment in retail where everybody's trying to cut their way to success. Big old brands that have been around for a long time are, are saying we got to chop cost of goods sold. We got to chop it, chop it, chop it, chop it. And there's, while they want to do recycle, there's not a lot of room for it on their balance sheet. So the, the business model became hard because every year we were getting more and more volume, but we were making less and less margin. And, and that's a hard thing to sell to, a, to people who we need money from in order to fund things like this. And, and by the way, I, I believe so strongly in, in venture-backed businesses. I believe that you know 
that we took money on in order to fund a supply chain that allows us to do what we do now. And had we tried to do this from the, for just, you know, our, on our own, we never would have been able to build in the impact that we have in the supply chain. So, you know, understanding how to sell to things like venture capital um, became really, really critical. And they don't want to see a margin that's 10%. They want to see a margin that's 50, 60, 70%. So there became this dance because I have a benefit corporation. I, I owe not just um, the financial bottom line, the attention I owe, the social bottom line, the environmental bottom line. I signed up for that. We put it into our operating agreement so that I'm, I'm legally bound to those things. It also offers me some protection so that when an investor comes along and says, you have to do it this way in order to maximize profit, I can say, well, not exactly. And so we were kicking, you know, as we were moving through fabric, these things were all coming up and it was just became clear that it was, it was time to go to that third, the third phase. It was originally recycled by thread, which is just selling plastic bottles, powered by thread, which is selling fabric and then made by thread, which is product. And we had this opportunity to come into Homewood and to start training people to, to stitch. And it's really hard. Like everything else we've, you know, tried to do, it's super hard. You know, there's uh, folks in the neighborhood who've never stitched before. There's not a ton of people who know how to stitch, but the trade was important to us. And, you know, so we had a choice to make. We said, we want to make product. Um, We want to do it here in Homewood as quickly as we can, but we have to continue to make money as a business. We have to figure out a way to stay afloat long enough to be able to do it. So conceived the product in uh, December, looked at 50, 60, 70 different bags out in the marketplace, realized that there was a big gap in backpacks that, you know, people go away from backpacks when they're, you know, 22, 23 years old, they leave their Herschel or their Jansport East pack behind, and they're ready to come into the world as an adult. And they're met with like super expensive stuff, 300 bucks or more, 200 bucks or more. And, and it's not recycled. There's not, doesn't have any of the stuff that like people are kind of, are kind of coming to expect. So we said, we're going to make a backpack and we're going to do it for less than 200 bucks. And we're going to do out of recycled materials from our first mile. And um, we're going to make it in Homewood. So we got to work, we designed it. I mean, this is now when I was speeding up to like six months ago, seven months ago, uh, month by month goes by. We're like, we're going to be ready to do this. And we started training people how to stitch. We figured how long is it going to take people to learn how to stitch? Like two months, three months. And then we learned that like people in, in China and Vietnam have been in Africa and South America have been stitching for generations and, and they're able to do it in a way that it can create and creates this amazing quality. And we, we realized that it's art, that there's an artisanal element to the work that we do that we were underestimating. So we said, oh shit, like what do we do? Now we need, in order to have this impact, we need to continue to drive the business forward. So how are we going to do that? What if we had a Kickstarter? Like what if we had a Kickstarter that allowed us to get the product up and running, right? And to teach us to how to make this product so that we could then in the next batch of stuff be able to to actually get it out there and and get it in a way that that was going to be made completely here or at least as much here as possible so we did and we made the call in uh, in in june we're going to kickstart it and the bag um came together it i love it it looks great i think uh it, it's really beautiful and i think it solves some really clear problems we and we went we set out to solve problems for the person who's moving through five, six, seven different places throughout their day. They get up in the morning, they come out of their apartment, they go to the gym, they go to the office, they go to drinks, they go to the coffee shop, they go to a date and they come home. And we feel like bags don't really meet people where they are. So they forced to either carry like two totes, one with their lunch, one with their gym clothes, or with guys who are trying to look nice. You say they have to put a sport coat on or something, can't, can't really wear a backpack. We had one person say, if a guy wears a backpack on a date, there will be no sex. <laughs> we we're like, whoa, we sh- if we can solve that problem, we yeah. will be ahead of the game. It's a lot like shoes, that, that flexibility. Yeah. You're seeing a similar versatility. trend. Where the versatility, that ability to work in a bunch of different scenarios. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. So we're using the Kickstarter to help get our, our team here in Homewood 
trained up, ready to go, so that we can launch our full brand in February of next year, Workweek Essentials, all made out of responsible materials and um, starting with the backpack, but then moving into lots of other cool stuff. So for this training period, like the behind the scenes, are some of these bags going to be assembled elsewhere or is every bag going to be assembled here in Homewood? Every bag in the Kickstarter is going to be assembled elsewhere. Okay. There'll be new tiers coming out in the Kickstarter in the coming days that are made here. Gotcha. So like there'll be like uh, we're going to really say by the time people listen to this, there'll probably be a tier that um, we have a cord pouch. That's one of our training projects that's going to be released with the bag that'll be made here. Um, but right now we have somebody in China right at this moment who's watching the bag being made so that we can bring all that knowledge back here and start to assemble it here. Uh, I so see. like the problem was, is that like when we when we slowed down our training, we realized that when the training slowed down for us, right, we said it's going to take more time. The only choice that we had was. so we didn't lay people off was to continue the training and then to release the product onto the market so that now when people participate in the Kickstarter, they're participating in us being able to do this long-term. Awesome. And that also fits squarely, you know, another theme that we've explored in the show is remote work and the disintermediation of education where you can go to YouTube and learn this tutorial and, you know, change my oil because I saw a YouTube video. But what you're touching on is the fact that this goes beyond that the artisanal element the fact that it really is a deep craftsmanship associated with being able to produce something like this that the training goes far beyond that that's that's pretty powerful it takes time and and you know it takes a, a little bit of us being able to say like this is hard and like the reason that we take on financing from big foundations or VC it is to tackle problems that are hard to do alone and that allow you to build things that, that would be otherwise very, very difficult to do. And we're super proud of the fabric we've been able to, to manufacture and make. And we're super proud of the supply chain and the people that are part of it and the number of people who are working because of it. Right now, I think there's about 2,500 people that are earning income because of the supply chain. But like we wanted the impact just as badly in the last mile of our supply chain as we did in the first mile, which is what spurred these decisions. It's amazing. It's so clear how powerful of a story you have, how easy it is for someone to become a fan of Thread and to buy into the story because of the mission that you guys are chasing and the values that you perpetuate. Uh, I want to commend you for that. I want to thank you for taking the time during this busy time with the Kickstarter. And uh, as we aim towards wrapping up here, before Mm -hmm. we ask our last two questions, anything else you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? Oh gosh. Well, I could, I mean, this is fun. I could talk about this stuff for a long time. It also is a little therapeutic to be honest with you. You know, it's, it's nice to be able to share. And I would just say that, that these, the the whole idea behind great projects, the whole idea behind good startups, the whole kind of good businesses and good ideas is, is that they require like carving away and work and getting up every day and going to do it. And it's the same if you're a plastic bottle collector in Port-au-Prince as you are if you're a startup founder. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that you asking these questions. It's really cool. Let me ask one more important question to that end. Yeah. You are, like you said, a tall, good looking white guy. <laughs> I didn't say good looking. I said, I'm saying good looking <laughs> in a beautiful office at the top of 7,800 Susquehanna yeah. with a company that has an amazing mission and an amazing story. It's a very admirable and, and to some degree, like people would, would love to do the type of work that yeah. it is that you're doing. I think that it's very easy for people to ascribe certain values to someone on a mission like this and think they don't have the doubts or the like, oh, is this really going to work? Am I really going to be able to do this? Have you had to deal with that? 
Oh God! Over the course of the journey. Yeah, I actually think that I thought the question was going to go a different direction. Yeah. Um. So I'll just answer the question, the direction I thought it was, sure. and that direction. I thought you were going to talk about, like, you were going to ask about how, like, I'm a tall white guy from the suburbs of Pittsburgh who right. works in a supply chain made up of people that are not his color, not his economic station, etc. Yeah. And um, and I thought that that was the question you were going to ask, and I'm happy to talk about that too because sure. I think that I think that it's really important to talk about the idea that I I would never have been able to do this the way that I've been able to do it had I not been born in America white and a man yeah no question right like it's just it was like the path was easier for me and and I feel like then thereby I have the responsibility to share that privilege right that like that the race particularly when you're white in the United States like that you have a privilege that nobody else has and that you have a responsibility to share it I think so, so that's where I thought the question was going to go. And I, I think that, that, you know, we do that, the, like th- those of us who have been lucky enough to be been born in the places and at the times that we were, we work every day to live up to that. But the question you asked was like, do I have doubts? And the answer is absolutely. Like there's not a day goes by. Like I haven't slept in 72 hours. Like I'm exhausted. And, and it's because I have no idea if this is going to work. You know, I just don't like I all I know is that so far everything that we talked about today was like every time that we got to a place where it was important to move to the next level that we moved. We got to the next level. And it's, you know, throughout this whole process, I started uh, running and I started ultra marathoning. And uh, it's just like a, it's a, it exercises the demons. And, and it, I, I, I was running this really long distance race and I was doing it, uh, it was 156 miles. And the last day of the race was 55 miles. And I'd never run that long before in my life. And I remember just thinking to myself, it, it was so painful. And I remember I thinking to myself that if I just continue to put one foot in front of the other, that enough time will pass that I will finish. I will be finished. And it was like, it was like I wasn't part of my body. It was just like, just let the time pass and make your feet move. And that is exactly how I feel about this is that, I don't know how it's going to work, but I know that if I just keep moving my feet, that enough time will pass, that we will finish. Thank you for that candor associated with the situation that you're in right now. I think that's really powerful. People, I love the, I love that you kind of issued the challenge around the privilege side yeah. of the conversation, but also just for, for people that I think it's so powerful for anyone, any creed, background, gender, whatever, to hear that those doubts are existing with everyone yeah. and then we have that common humanity. I think that's also something that gives people permission to go and, and try it themselves yes. or to try to make that difference themselves to understand that that's par for the course. Yeah, that you should walk forward without fear. You know, you're going to mess up. People are going to be mad at you. And if they're not mad at you, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. Beautiful. Ian, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I want to make sure that people not only support the Kickstarter campaign, if it's still going on, obviously the, the podcast lives on in perpetuity. So um, regardless, where can people go to learn more? What digital coordinates can we provide? Yeah, great. Uh, if you'd like to support or learn more, go to www.abetterbackpack.com. That's the best way. Cool. That is linked in the show notes for this episode. Every single one can be found at goingdeepwitharon.com slash podcast. Uh, also definitely going to direct people to check out the Instagram account associated with the uh, with Thread as well. But as we do at the end of each conversation, Ian, before we let you go, I want to give you the mic a final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Yeah, I would just say, say yes. Beautiful. Say yes. Buy a backpack. <laughs> Keep listening. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Ian. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was fun. 
Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope that you have your calendar marked for March 23rd, 2019. The second Going Deep Summit will be taking place in Pittsburgh and be an amazing gathering of ambitious, forward-thinking people, not just the speakers that we already have lined up, Alan Gannett, Mike Dariano, both previous guests of the show, but quite frankly, the type of characters that would show up on a Saturday morning to be at an event like this, pay for the ticket. That is a certain type of person, and you want to get in the room with those types of people. That's where the magic happens. That's where lasting friendships happen. We have so many positive reviews from the first Going Deep Summit. That's a big reason why we pulled the trigger on a second one, but also because we're going a little bit bigger and better in every single way this time. Get your tickets now. Prices are going up. Goingdeepwithaaron.com slash event is the place to find all that ticketing info. And I hope that I will see you March 23rd. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59. I, uh... I have that mustache sticker. I have that pair of socks. That's from Nick Adkins. Yeah. Did you meet him at your party? No, but I have his socks. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Do you know the story behind that? Yeah. And uh, um, somebody gave me, when we opened the socks, they gave me the sticker. And I was like, I'm putting this on my computer. It's the first time I've seen one. I love that. So Nick moved to Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. the day of your launch party for the Kickstarter campaign. No kidding. No joke. And he came oh. He came to the party. He was there. Really? Yeah. Oh, you should tell him to come by again. That's amazing. Absolutely. Pittsburgh is like not even a full degree of separation, it seems like. So it's not. That's the beauty of it. That's the good and the bad of it. Exactly.